TED Talks are recorded live at the TED Conference and produced with WNYC New York Public Radio. This episode features Harvard professor and happiness expert Dan Gilbert. TED Talks are made possible through the support of BMW, where ideas are everything. Here's Dan Gilbert. We all make decisions every day. We want to know what the right thing is to do in domains from the financial to the gastronomic to the professional to the romantic. And surely, if somebody could really tell us how to do exactly the right thing at all possible times, that would be a tremendous gift. It turns out that, in fact, the world was given this gift in 1738 by a Dutch polymath named Daniel Bernoulli. And what I want to talk to you about today is what that gift is, and I also want to explain to you why it is that it hasn't made a damn bit of difference. The simple English translation, much less precise, but it captures the gist of what Bernoulli had to say was this. The expected value of any of our actions, that is, the goodness that we can count on getting, is the product of two simple things. The odds that this action will allow us to gain something and the value of that gain to us. In a sense, what Bernoulli was saying is if we can estimate and multiply these two things, we will always know precisely how we should behave. People are horrible at estimating both of these things, and that's what I want to talk to you about today. There are two kinds of errors people make when trying to decide what the right thing is to do, and those are errors in estimating the odds that they're going to succeed and errors in estimating the value of their own success. Now, let me talk about the first one first. Calculating odds would seem to be something rather easy. There are six sides to a die, two sides to a coin, 52 cards in a deck. You all know what the likelihood is of pulling the ace of spades or of flipping a heads. But as it turns out, this is not a very easy idea to apply in everyday life. That's why Americans spend more, I should say lose more, gambling than on all other forms of entertainment combined. The reason is, this isn't how people do odds. The way people figure odds requires that we first talk a bit about pigs. Now, the question I'm going to put to you is whether you think there are more dogs or pigs on leashes observed in any particular day in Oxford. And, of course, you all know that the answer is dogs. And the way you know that the answer is dogs is you quickly reviewed in memory the times you've seen dogs and pigs on leashes. It was very easy to remember seeing dogs, not so easy to remember pigs. And each one of you assumed that if dogs on leashes came more quickly to your mind, then dogs on leashes are more probable. That's not a bad rule of thumb, except when it is. So, for example, here's a word puzzle. Are there more four-letter English words with R in the third place or R in the first place? Well, you check memory very briefly, make a quick scan, and it's awfully easy to say to yourself, uh, ring, rang, rung, and very hard to say to yourself, uh, bear, park, they come more slowly. But in fact, there are many more words in the English language with R in the third than the first place. The reason words with R in the third place come slowly to your mind isn't because they're improbable, unlikely, or infrequent. It's because the mind recalls words by their first letter. You kind of shout out the sound, and the word comes. It's like the dictionary. It's hard to look things up by the third letter. So this is an example of how this idea that the quickness with which things come to mind can give you a sense of their probability, how this idea can lead you astray. It's not just puzzles, though. For example, when Americans are asked to estimate the odds 
that they will die in a variety of interesting ways. These are estimates of of number of deaths per year per 200 million U.S. citizens. And these are just ordinary people who are asked to guess how many people die from tornado, fireworks, asthma, drowning, etc. Compare these to the actual numbers. Now, you see a very interesting pattern here, which is, first of all, two things are vastly overestimated, namely tornadoes and fireworks. Two things are vastly underestimated, dying by drowning and dying by asthma. Why? When was the last time you picked up a newspaper and the headline was, boy dies of asthma? It's not interesting because it's so common. It's very easy for all of us to bring to mind instances of news stories or newsreels where we've seen tornadoes devastating cities or some poor schmuck who's blown his hands off with a firework on the 4th of July. Drownings and asthma deaths don't get much coverage. They don't come quickly to mind, and as a result, we vastly underestimate them. Now, estimating odds, as difficult as it may seem, is a piece of cake compared to trying to estimate value. Trying to say what something is worth, how much we'll enjoy it, how much pleasure it will give us. How much is this Big Mac worth? Is it worth $25? Most of you have the intuition that it's not. You wouldn't pay that for it. But in fact, to ask whether a Big Mac, to decide whether a Big Mac is worth $25 requires that you ask one and only one question, which is, what else can I do with $25? If you've ever gotten on one of those long-haul flights to Australia and realized that they're not going to serve you any food, but somebody in the row in front of you has just opened the McDonald's bag and the smell of golden arches is wafting over the seat, you think, I can't do anything else with this $25 for 16 hours. I can't even set it on fire. They took my cigarette lighter. Suddenly, $25 for a Big Mac might be a good deal. On the other hand, if you're visiting an underdeveloped country and $25 buys you a gourmet meal, it's exorbitant for a Big Mac. Why were you all sure that the answer to the question was no before I'd even told you anything about the context? Because most of you compared the price of this Big Mac to the price you're used to paying. Rather than asking, what else can I do with my money, comparing this investment to other possible investments, you compared to the past. And this is a systematic error people make. What you knew was you paid $3 in the past, 25 is outrageous. Comparing with the past causes many of the problems that behavioral economists and psychologists identify in people's attempts to assign value. But even when we compare with the possible instead of the past, we still make certain kinds of mistakes. And I'm going to show you one or two of them. One of the things we know about comparison that when we compare one thing to the other, it changes its value. So in 1992, this fellow George Bush, for those of us who were kind of on the liberal side of the political spectrum, didn't seem like such a great guy. Suddenly, we're almost longing for him to return. The comparison... The comparison changes how we evaluate him. Now, retailers knew this long before anybody else did, of course, and they used this wisdom to help you uh, spare you the undue burden of money. And uh, so a retailer, if you were to go into a wine shop and you had to buy a bottle of wine and you see them here for $8.27 and $33, what would you do? Most people don't want the most expensive, they don't want the least expensive, so they will opt for the item in the middle. If you're a smart retailer, then you will put a very expensive item that nobody will ever buy on the shelf because suddenly the $33 wine doesn't look as expensive in comparison. So I'm telling you something you already knew, namely that comparison changes the value of things. Here's why that's a problem. The problem is that when you get that $33 bottle of wine home, 
it won't matter what it used to be sitting on the shelf next to. The comparisons we make when we are uh, apprising value, when we are praising value, when we are trying to estimate how much we'll like things, are not the same comparisons we'll be making when we consume them. This problem of shifting comparisons can bedevil our attempts to make rational decisions. So here's a question. You want to buy a car stereo? The dealer near your house sells this particular stereo for $200. But if you drive across town, you can get it for 100 bucks. So would you drive to get 50% off, saving $100? Most people say they would. They can't imagine buying it for twice the price when with one trip across town, they can get it for half off. Now, let's imagine instead you wanted to buy a car that had a stereo and the dealer near your house had it for 31000 but if you drove across town, you could get it for 30900 Would you drive to get it? This .003 savings, the $100, most people say no. I'm going to schlep across town to save 50 bucks on the purchase of a car. This kind of thinking drives economists crazy, and it should. Because this $100 that you save, hello, doesn't know where it came from. It doesn't know what you saved it on. When you go to buy groceries with it, it doesn't go, I'm the money saved on the car stereo, or I'm the dumb money saved on the car. It's money. And if a drive across town is worth 100 bucks, it's worth 100 bucks no matter what you're saving it on. You can see this is the problem of shifting comparisons because what you're doing is you're comparing the 100 bucks to the purchase that you're making. But when you go to spend that money, you won't be making that comparison. Well, the question with which I'd like to end is this. If we're so damn stupid, how did we get to the moon? Because I could go on for about two hours with evidence of people's inability to uh, estimate odds and inability to estimate value. The answer to this question, I think, is an answer you've already heard, and I dare say you will hear again, namely that our brains were evolved for a very different world than the one in which we are living. They were evolved for a world in which people lived in very small groups, rarely met anybody who was terribly different from themselves, had rather short lives in which there were few choices, and the highest priority was to eat and mate today. Bernoulli's gift, Bernoulli's little formula, allows us, it tells us how we should think in a world for which nature never designed us. That explains why we are so bad at using it, but it also explains why it is so terribly important that we become good fast. We are the only species on this planet that has ever held its own fate in its hands. We have no significant predators. We are the masters of our physical environment. The things that normally cause species to become extinct are no longer any threat to us. The only thing, the only thing that can destroy us and doom us are our own decisions. If we're not here in 10,000 years, it's going to be because we could not take advantage of the gift given to us by a young Dutch fellow in 1738 because we underestimated the odds of our future pains and overestimated the value of our present pleasures. That was Dan Gilbert, recorded at TED Global in Oxford, England, July 2005. TED Talks are produced by WNYC New York Public Radio for TED. TED Talks are made possible through the support of BMW, where ideas are everything. For more information on TED, visit TED.com.